Well, we are talking about worldviews today, and to kind of uh, introduce us to this topic, think about this. How is it that two people can be looking at exactly the same thing and see it differently? Let's take a look at this image up on the screen, for example. You've probably seen this before. When you look at it, what do you see? How many of you see first, initially, a younger woman facing away from us? How many of you initially see an older woman looking down and to the left? Okay. Well, this is what's called an illusion. And I, I think I saw a statistic that said 70% of people see the young woman looking away from us first. 30% see the older lady. How many of you now see both images really clearly? How many of you are totally mystified? <laughs> well, if you want, you can go home this afternoon, Google... Uh, Young woman, old woman, illusion, and you can look at it all afternoon and try to figure that out, <laughs> if you'd like. Reveals how people can look at the same picture and see two different things. All right, come back, come back. Uh, so this is true in life also, isn't it? When I was in middle school, my best friend started to like a particular young lady who was in our youth group, and he was just head over heels in love with her, actually it was probably more just infatuation, and he would forever be telling me how gorgeous, how drop-dead gorgeous he thought this girl was. And I would look at the same girl and go, you know, not so much, really. I mean, we just had different lenses. We saw things a little bit differently, and we just ended up agreeing to disagree to each his own, I guess, when it comes to things like that. But it's true, isn't it? Everybody has a particular set of lenses through which they see and perceive the world around them and, and reality. We each have our own unique perception of people and situations. You know, one guy's looking on eBay at his computer screen, and he sees a 66 GTO, and he sees a classic car with awesome potential. His wife, looking over his shoulder at the exact same picture, just sees an old rust bucket that's bound to turn into a money pit. Same image, two different perceptions two different sets of glasses. I've discovered that even sermons are subject to this phenomenon. It's interesting being a pastor sometimes because on Mondays I'll get some emails, you know, about the weekend. And so an email will come flying in and it'll say, Pastor Steve, you know, thank you so much for the awesome sermon this weekend. And then one will come in right behind it saying something markedly less complimentary than that one. <laughs> Same sermon, two different perceptions of it. That just happens. Well, this is true not only on the, on the micro level, but also on the macro level of our lives as well. You and everybody you know has a set of glasses, lenses, through which you see the world and interpret all of life. Take, for example, these images. One person looks at a beautiful sunset and gushes, wow, what an amazing creator we have. Or they look at this strand of DNA and they say, wow, God has incredible artistry and creative power to do something like that. Another person looks at those same things and says, well, look what time and chance produced. Hmm. <laughs> or look at this image. The Bible tells us that some people look at that image and say, thank God, that's my Savior, that's Jesus Christ. And him hanging on the cross there, that was, he was paying for my sins. He was my substitute, my sacrifice. I, 
I love him for it, and he deserves my whole life. Other people look at that scene and say, what? Foolishness. What's the big deal about a Jewish carpenter being executed by the Romans 2,000 years ago? What's the big deal about that? What does that have to do with my life today? Everybody views the world through a set of lenses, and I asked our creative team to come up with a an eye-catching, attention-grabbing set of lenses to illustrate this, and this is what they came up with for me. So there you have it, right? There's more. And there's more. If it works, here we go. Some guy last night shouted out, now you're ready for Vegas. It's like, yeah, that's me, ready for Vegas. Well, everybody has a set of lenses through which they see the world and perceive reality. And that set of lenses, that set of glasses, scholars call a worldview, a worldview. And exploring and understanding some common worldviews are what this series is going to be all about these next several weeks. Today's message is going to have two sections. The first part is going to feel more like a seminar, like you're sitting in a class called Introduction to Worldviews or Worldviews 101, and then I'll finish out that section and it'll start to feel more like a sermon as we look at a passage in the Bible that describes God's worldview, okay? So here we go, and I put a little uh, PowerPoint presentation together, and so just pretend that like, like it's 1993 all over again, okay? And uh, we're going to learn a little bit about worldviews, and I got my handy-dandy clicker here. So let me begin by giving you some fast facts about worldviews. First of all, everybody has one. Whether you know it or not, whether you can clearly articulate it or not, you have a worldview. You have a set of lenses through which you see the world. Everybody does. That worldview is formed over a lifetime by a variety of influences and factors, parents, teachers, books, experiences, friends, culture, all of those factors and more shape our worldview. And it's important to know, and I'm encouraged by this, that your worldview can change. It can morph over time. Second, your worldview is very important. It's perhaps the most defining thing about you because it determines your attitude. It determines your outlook on everything, every circumstance, all of your relationships. For example, if a tornado rolls through Haiti, your worldview determines your internal emotional response when you see those images on your television screen. That's determined by your worldview. How you feel about the upcoming election and the candidates is shaped and molded by your worldview. What value you place on having older people in your life is determined by your worldview. So this is a critical part of who you are. Not only that, it's important for understanding other people too, their worldview. Remember last week we talked about our mission in the world, what Jesus has sent us into the world to be and to do, to spread Christ's gospel message, right, and to win more followers of Jesus. Well, if we want Christ to influence other people through us, we need to understand their worldview. We need to, to come to a, an understanding of where they're coming from, how they view reality, how they perceive the world. Without that, communicating with them is likely going to end up being a frustrating experience. And then it's interesting to note that worldviews are subject to scrutiny. That means we can look at that. And I think this is one of the traits that sets us apart 
from animals. We are unique in our ability to take off our worldview glasses, set them down, and take a look at how we look at things. You know, baboons can't do that, as far as we know. This notion of examining how we view life seems to be unique to human beings. And that's part of what we'll be doing in this series. All right, let's get more specific. What I'm talking about worldviews, and you're saying, well, what is a worldview? Let me give you several definitions of a worldview. A, a guy named Dr. James Sire, a very smart man, wrote a book a few years ago called The Universe Next Door. And I'm recommending that to you today, just kind of a primer or a textbook on worldviews. And he describes a worldview like this. A worldview, he says, is a set of presuppositions which we hold consciously or subconsciously about the basic makeup of our world. Another definition might read like this, a network of assumptions about the nature of reality. What we assume about life, and we, we rarely challenge it, we just believe it. Those assumptions can either be true or false, but they will undoubtedly influence how we treat people and how we view situations in our surroundings. Another scholar defines our worldview as our system of beliefs about life and about the world that we live in. Our belief system. So you kind of get the idea of what a worldview is? The truth is, we think about our belief system, you believe things that you rarely challenge. And so do I. These are our assumptions about life. For example, how about this belief? Pain is always bad and to be avoided at all costs. <laughs> now, if you believe that, then that's part of your worldview, and you will live your life seeking to avoid situations that pose any risk of pain. A person can live 80 years with that belief and just assume it's true and never really challenge it. But we all have beliefs like that, and we just assume they are true, and that's what philosophers call presuppositions or assumptions. And so your worldview is the sum total of all of those beliefs that you have about reality. We, we could call it your basic unchallenged belief system. That's your worldview. So you see why I call it a lens through which you see the world? Your worldview affects the way you look at everything. Now, a worldview is not just some academic, abstract, pie-in-the-sky, ethereal notion that doesn't have anything to do with daily life. A coherent worldview prov provides a framework for providing specific answers to some of the most basic and most important questions in our lives. So let's take a look at that. What questions does a worldview attempt to answer? First, a coherent worldview answers the question, what's the nature of reality? In other words... What is really real and why is there something rather than nothing? Now some of you right now are starting to think, this really sounds kind of egg-heady to me. And I understand that. I remember back when I was in grad school, I was taking some philosophy courses years ago. And I was getting all energized of studying existentialism and stuff like that. And one day I thought, you know, I'm going to impress my wife <laughs> with my knowledge. And I came home after class and I walked in the door and I said, honey, guess what? it's only highly probable that you exist. <laughs> and without missing a beat, she said, maybe I'm too good to be true. <laughs> like, touche. <laughs> She's good. She's good. Well, 
this question of the nature of reality is a worldview question. And it's really the first question, isn't it? Does anything really exist or is it all a figment of our imaginations? <laughs> well, nearly all worldviews, you know, admit the existence of some kind of reality. They assume it. If you deny that anything really exists, then you don't exist, so what you say doesn't really matter. It's just absurd, right? So just about every worldview assumes things exist. But if that is true, then it leads to the next question, where did it come from? How did it all get here? This is the question of origin or first cause. And a worldview seeks to answer that question as well, how everything got here, everything that we see in our world. Is everything that exists just the result of time and chance, or is there a supernatural being out there who made it all? A worldview seeks to answer that question in some coherent way. And that leads us to the third question that a worldview seeks to answer. Is there a God? Is there a supernatural being who stands outside of time and space but can act on our world as he pleases? And if there is, is is he more like a force, like in Star Wars, or like Mother Nature, or is there a personal God? And if so, what, what is he like? Another question that arises that a worldview seeks to answer is, what's the nature of man? What does it mean to be human? Are we just physical beings, or are we body and soul, mind and matter? Are there any differences between humans and animals? A related question is, is man basically good? And when he does bad things, it's because society makes him do bad things? Or is there some built-in badness in mankind? A worldview needs to address those questions. And that leads us to the fifth question. What's the basic basis of ethics? What's the basis of morality? How do we as human beings determine what is right and what is wrong? On what, what basis do we make evaluations and say, that was good or that was really bad? Where, where does that perception come from? Where does morality come from? Another question, excuse me, an important one, what, what happens after we die? Yeah, your worldview contains your answer to that question. Does everything just fade to black, you know, black screen, extinction? Or do we get reincarnated and come back to earth as an ant or a cow or a human? Do we get absorbed into the cosmic consciousness? Or do we enter a shadowy existence on the other side? Or do we stand before God and face judgment, and eternity. Our worldview determines our answer to that question. And then this, what is the meaning of history? What is the meaning of history? Our, our worldview helps us make sense of the things we see on the news every night and, and define what's important and what's trivial. It seeks to understand if history is simply a cycle of events with no real meaning or purpose or if it's going somewhere. If history is headed somewhere towards a consummation or towards a fulfillment and of course the related question why are we here <laughs> to make a paradise on earth to propagate the race a worldview attempts to answer all those kinds of questions about the meaning of history and then finally the question about knowledge how do we know what we know this is the question of epistemology is there such a thing as truth how can you know truth? Can you ever say that you know something for certain, like I'm 100% sure that I know this? And if so, on what basis can we say that we have that knowledge? Is it through our mind? Is it through reason? Is it through our senses? Is it through 
the scientific method? Is it through revelation coming to us from outside or a combination of those things? How do we get knowledge? Seminar's almost over, honey. Just hold on, hold on. <laughs> our worldview informs our belief about how we come to know the things that we know. Now, there was a time when most people, especially most people living here in the West, would have answered all those questions in the same way. There was a time when there was some uniformity to our culture and people shared a common worldview up until about the 1700s or so. If you'd asked this question to just about anybody in this country, you would have got similar answers. That era is often referred to as Christendom. Now, do you think Christendom still prevails? No. People who observe and watch the culture tell us we are now living in a post-Christendom era. We live in a pluralistic culture where people believe all different sorts of things. And so if you ask those eight questions to a white university student in the Northwest and a Latino laborer in California and a World War II vet and a homemaker in the South and a young professional in New England, if you ask all those questions to those people, you get a variety of different answers about morality and what happens after death, and the nature of man, and how did we all get here, and all those questions. There is no longer a shared worldview in this country, or, or in the world for that matter. So over the course of the next several weekends, we're going to be exploring several primary worldviews that exist in our culture, as well as some of the derivatives that flow out of those primary views. And as we do that, I hope that you'll think about the people that you know. Think about your siblings, your brothers and sisters, for example. How do they view and perceive life? Do they have a, a different set of lenses than you do when it comes to how they look at life? Or the people that you work with, you know, in the next cubicle, every day, or the people that you go to school with, and seek to understand where they're coming from, what glasses they have on. It's extremely helpful in communicating with people if we seek to understand the lenses through which they see the world. All right, seminar is now over. And I want to shift the emphasis a bit. And I want to place before us a truth that perhaps you've never thought about much. And this is it. God has a worldview. Yes, he does. God has a particular set of lenses through which he perceives the world and perceives reality. And the Bible presents and advocates a particular worldview, and it's a worldview that actually comes from the mind of God himself. It's God's worldview. Imagine being able to put on the glasses through which God perceives reality. Imagine looking at the world, at mankind, at morality, at life and death, at human history, and seeing it the way God sees it. What would you see? How would things appear? And how would his worldview, how would God's set of glasses differ from your own? Well, if you have a Bible this morning, I'm going to ask you to turn to Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40. I love Isaiah chapter 40 and chapter 41 and 42 and 43 and 44. I've spent whole seasons of my life living in those chapters because in that section of scripture, we find a description of God's worldview, the way he sees things. And if you want to 
get synced up with God's worldview, this is a place to spend some time, Isaiah 40 through 44. We can't go into everything today, but I want to read a portion of Isaiah 40 and then make a few hopefully pertinent comments as we go along. I call this the worldview of God. Let's start reading in verse 10 of Isaiah 40. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power and his arm rules for him. See, his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. Now, first, let's note this, that in God's worldview, God exists. That makes sense, right? And not only does he exist, but he is the prime reality. He is the ultimate reality. Plus, in God's worldview, man is not sovereign. God is sovereign. You see that? He is the sovereign Lord. That means that God is over all. He's powerful beyond human comprehension, and he has the authority and ability to do whatever he wants. It says in verse 10 that he is a ruler and a rewarder. Do you see that? His arm rules for him. And his reward is with him. That means he's a judge who evaluates all that is going on and he evaluates things by his own standards. And maybe that sounds terrifying to you this morning. And in one sense, maybe it should. But notice in verse 11, God is described not only as terrifying, but also tender. You see that? Like a shepherd, it says. Carrying his little lambs close to his chest gently leading his sheep and their babies. What a picture. Is that your view of God? Terrifying in his ultimate sovereignty, yet tender, a sovereign king, and yet a gentle shepherd. He's both. Verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, or with the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in a balance? Who has understood the mind of the Lord or instructed him as his counselor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him and who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? Verse 15, surely the nations are like a drop in the bucket. They are regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. Lebanon is not sufficient for altar fires, nor its animals enough for burnt offerings. Saying God's worth more than that in worship. Before him, all the nations are as nothing. They are regarded by him as worthless and less than nothing. You know what? In God's worldview, God, the sovereign king, has no peers. No legitimate rivals. He is bigger than both heaven and earth combined, and his wisdom is unmatched by any other being. It's interesting that he asks these rhetorical questions. Who has understood the mind of the Lord? Who instructed him as his counselor? Who taught him the right way? Answer? No one. <laughs> no one. But I wonder how many times have human beings in the midst of tragedy or disaster cried out against God, accusing him of mismanaging their circumstances, charging him with wrongdoing? I wonder how many of us have done that. I wonder how many times I've done that. 
Have you ever tried to instruct God as his counselor? Okay, look, God, here's the deal. I think you should have done this differently. I think you should have arranged my circumstances to make them a little more pleasant for me. If I were you, I wouldn't have done it like that. Oh, my. Listen, the truth is that God is above being counseled by human beings, and he is above being corrected by human beings. Have you found that out yet? He has never wronged anyone. Not once. God is good. What he does is good by definition. In God's worldview, God is unmatched in wisdom and in power, majesty, and greatness. It says before him all, all nations are as nothing. So he's not impressed by the things that often impress us. Verse 18. To whom then will you compare God? What image will you compare him to? As for an idol, a craftsman casts it and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and fashions silver chains for it. And a man too poor to present such an offering selects wood that, that will not rot. And he looks for a skilled craftsman to set up an idol that will not topple. So what's this? Well, this is a striking picture of the utter absurdity of trying to reduce God to some kind of image or statue, right? He will not be reduced. Verse 21. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth. Enthroned. That's kingly language, isn't it? And above the circle of the earth. And how many Centuries ago were Christians ridiculed for believing that the, you know, the earth was flat or people thought that Christians believed the earth was flat. But right here in Isaiah, B.C., the circle of the earth. He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth and its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy. He spreads them out like a tent to live in. He brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground than he blows on them, and they wither, and a whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. Speaking of world rulers, maybe you've heard of Louis XIV. He was known to many as Louis the Great in France in the 17th century because his reign extended longer than any European ruler. 72 years this man ruled. Many military victories brought him great honor and loyalty. Millions of people in France in that era revered him. But despite his so-called greatness, he finally did die. And at his funeral service, the Bishop of Claremont was giving the eulogy at Louis's funeral, and he looked down at the remains of the man whom at one time all of Europe had trembled at, Louis the Great, and he began his eulogy by saying this, God alone is great. And he was right. The mightiest human ruler will one day pass off the scene and become a distant memory and maybe even fodder for humorists and cartoonists. Human pomp and royalty and majesty pales in comparison to the great and majestic God of the universe. Verse 25. To 
to whom will you compare me? This is God now talking. To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One? Lift your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls them each by name because of his great power and mighty strength. Not one of them is missing. That's quite a picture, isn't it? Do you know how many stars there are in the sky? A lot. Yeah. Current estimates number up in the billions. In fact, 400 billion stars are believed to be in our Milky Way galaxy alone. Of course, our sun is just one of those 400 billion stars, and the Milky Way is just one galaxy. Believe it or not, scientists tell us that there are possibly 200 billion, with a B, galaxies in the universe. So how many stars are there? Some of you doing the math. Just taking a very conservative estimate of only 100 billion stars per galaxy. You do the math, it comes out to 20 and followed by 21 zeros. That's 20 sextillion stars, but wait. Modern scientists are saying this, a recent study concluded that our universe actually contains more than 300 sextillion stars. That's a lot of stars. Even given those astronomical figures, God claims to be able to call each star in the night sky by name. You try that. It's not going to go well, I can tell you. I'll tell you what, in God's worldview, God himself has no equal, no peers, no legitimate rivals. His greatness is unmatched, unparalleled, as he himself said in Isaiah 45, 5, I am the Lord and there is no other besides me. There is no God. Now you might think, when you hear all of that, that with all of this star naming and with all of this ruler-reducing activity, God might be too busy to care much about your one little life in this one little state, in this one little country, on this one little planet, in this one little solar system, in this one little galaxy, in one far corner of the universe. But if you think that, that he's too busy running the universe to care about you, you would be mistaken. Did you know that? You would be wrong. I hope your worldview includes this view of God too. Verse 27. Why do you say, O Jacob, and complain, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord? My cause is disregarded by my God. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary. In his understanding, no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord, or as the King James says, they who wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will, not walk, they will walk and not be faint. Oh my. So yes, God is the sovereign Lord of all. God is transcendent. He is outside and above time and space. And yes, the mighty creator marks out the heavens with his hands and he holds the ocean in the palm of his massive hand. Yes, he elevates one king and decimates another while moving history towards its ultimate 
fulfillment and consummation. And yes, he knows the names of 300 sextillion stars and places them in the night sky like diamonds against the black velvet of the night sky. But do not think for a moment, do not think for a moment that God is so busy and preoccupied that he doesn't care about your life because he does. That's our God. That's our God. Praise God for that. Does your worldview have room for the personal concern of God? He cares for you. His infinite capacities mean that he never gets tired. He never grows weary. He never has to take a nap on Sunday afternoon like I probably will because he's worn out and wants to be replenished. He never sleeps or slumbers, the Bible says. He has an infinite capacity, an infinite reservoir of supply and strength. And you know what? He offers it to his people. He gives strength to the weary is what it says. And those who wait on the Lord, who hope in him, receive a fresh infusion of his strength that will cause them to soar like eagles. Someone ought to write a song about that. You know, like, wind beneath my wings or something, you know that would describe what it's like to be floating on the power and strength and energy of God. Isn't that amazing that the God of the universe would offer his strength to those who are weak and weary? And when you're downtrodden and when you're worn out and tired, he says, hope in me, wait on me, I'll pour my strength in you so you'll be able to keep walking, keep walking, keep putting one step, one foot in front of another, And when the journey is long and hard and you wonder if maybe you should just throw in the towel and quit, God says, I'm going to strengthen you. You will run and not grow weary. Walk and not faint. God sharing his mighty strength with those who look to him, who trust in him. That's God. That's who he is. And that view forms the underpinnings of a worldview that is God-centered where he puts himself at the center of the universe, of the world, and of your life, my life. Isn't that awesome? That's awesome. Thank you, God. Well, next weekend, we're going to explore together a very common worldview, popular especially in the 18th to the 20th centuries, called naturalism. And understanding how the naturalist thinks is so crucial to understanding how we got to where we are today in our country. So you can look forward to that. Before we close up our time together, I want to pray for us. And You know, I just love what it says. You know this verse. It's on a plaque in your house, perhaps. Isaiah 40, 31. They who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. How many of you would say, I need God's strength today? I need God's strength today. Put your hands down. How many of you would say, I really need God's strength these days? Like big time. You know, there are some people who perhaps a few even in this room who feel like you're going down for the third time. 
You're not just worn out. You're not, not just weary. You're not just beaten down. But you're wondering, is there any hope? Why keep going? Why not just cash out? Maybe you needed to be here today to have a pastor look you in the eye and say, they that wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. God offers his strength to the weary. You bow your heads and close your eyes with me. Maybe where you're at today is, you know, you hear all this talk about God and who he is and who he says he is, and, and where you're at is, man, Steve, I just need to know that God. I don't, I don't, I don't think I really know him. I need someone to explain to me, guide me, and how to approach that God, how to talk with him, how to have a relationship with him. That's where I'm at. I mean, my eyes are being open to, to the fact that he's real and, and that he's great, but also that he cares for me. That's where I'm at today. I, I, I need to know this God. Would you lift your hand if that describes you this morning? That's where I'm at. Thank you, thank you. Anybody on my right over here? Over on my left. Say, that's where I'm at. I just need to know this God. Let me pray for us. Lord, I pray for all my friends, my brothers and sisters here today who need your strength, Lord, who are weary. Life has dealt them circumstances and events that are wearing them out. Their emotional tank is nearing empty. And Lord, they need a fresh filling, a fresh infusion of your strength. And I pray they would not walk out of this room this morning without having received from you, from your vast reservoir of supply. I pray for them that they, you would show them what it means for them to wait on you like a servant waiting on his master, that you would show them what it means for them to put their hope in you. And as you do, because you just have this way about you, that you would lift them up on wings like eagles. Lord, some people in this room just need to be prayed with this morning. They need a physical touch from a member of your body and hear the words of a prayer offered to you and Lord may they take advantage of our prayer partners and come and be prayed with in the next few moments Lord for any who are here and several acknowledge Lord they just need to know you they just need to be guided in how to have a relationship with you oh God I pray they too would come and talk with someone and wouldn't leave the building before asking someone how can I know this God how can I enter into a relationship with him what does Jesus and that cross have to do with all that, Lord? And may we be prepared with an answer. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for loving us, for offering your strength to us. We worship you now in song and with our prayers. In Jesus' name.